Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. And uh, welcome to Wallace Bible. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome to all of you who are joining us online. Really glad you can be with us as well. Hey, uh, pretty cool coming in and seeing the parking lot this morning, isn't it? Seeing all that stuff lined up, I kind of like the way they just blocked off everybody from going out and messing up what they created. It reminded me when I was a little, little boy, I had three little brothers and I would do that with my stuff. I'd block them off so they didn't mess up my life. And uh, anyway, that's just, it feels like little boys out there playing, seeing all that stuff going. So that's where my mind goes. Hey, before uh, I get started this morning, forgive me too for sucking on something. That's uh, just so I can spare you me coughing while I'm preaching this morning as well. Um, but I just want to, I want to say thank you um, before we get in the message. Uh, you know, uh, many of you know, I've been here now uh, just over 19 years at Wawasee. And... Uh, uh, a couple months ago, the end of April, at the end of a service, you guys surprised me and my wife and my son and uh, gave us a, a couple days away in Chicago and got to go to a Cubs game. And all of that happened this week. And so I thought I'd, just, I'd show you a couple pictures from our time away. It was kind of fun. We, we started off Monday, we went to the Sears Tower and uh, we went up to the top of the Sears Tower. And one of the things, if you haven't been there in a long time, um, they now have a thing called the Ledge where there's this part that's, there's an inch and a half of glass that you can go out and stand on and it's on the west side of the building and it's a straight, clear shot down to South Wacker. And uh, so that's us out on the ledge and uh, there's Charlie just totally putting his faith in that piece of glass. He wore that Captain America mask just about everywhere we went and uh, it was pretty exciting. Uh, we wandered our way over to the Bean, got a picture there, you can see us in our reflection, and then uh, found our hotel, and uh, hopped on the CTA and rode up to Wrigley, and uh, we got there on Monday evening for the game, it was uh, the Cubs versus the Padres, and it was, let me just tell you, there were a lot of memories made, uh, especially uh, for Charlie, uh, Charlie just finished kindergarten, uh, one, he lost a tooth while we were waiting for the game to start. And uh, so I don't know how many people have ever lost a tooth at a Cubs game, but my son is one of them. Um, and then about an hour before the game started, though, uh, you remember there were some storms around here Monday night too, right? And uh, some of you uh, experienced that. Well, they started in Chicago uh, because up on the, on the video board came this announcement, you know, there's inclement weather in the area. Stand by for more details. Well, uh, about 10 after 6, the game was supposed to start at 7 central time. They ushered everybody down to the concourse and out of the stadium. And so uh, we were all down there for about an hour and a half. Now, this is Charlie sitting on Hannah's feet. He'd take turns between my feet and her feet sitting on the ground. And then eventually, uh, about a half hour or so into that, we got this sign that popped up and said a tornado has been spotted in the area. Uh, some of you know I went to college in Chicago, lived... Uh, for about four and a half, five years in Chicago. I went to college. I got a four-year degree. I can tell you that story another time in those four and a half to five years. You can do the math. Um, but in that entire time, I never heard a tornado siren living downtown Chicago. And I've uh, been to a ton of Cubs games, never heard a tornado siren. So that was just kind of surreal. And eventually they got the game going. Uh, they started about 8.30 Central Time, 9.30 Eastern Time. And we thought originally Charlie would make it maybe a couple innings, you know, half the game and that'd be the end. And he made it the whole game. It was incredible and loved every minute of it. There was a guy came up from in the dugout. He's sitting there in the red, kind of eavesdropping, gave him, gave him a game ball. Uh, 
that had come off the field. And um, yeah, we just had a great time. Then uh, Tuesday, we spent the day at Shedd Aquarium, got some Giordano's, and then came home on, on Wednesday morning. So I just want to say thank you. Thanks for, um, just for my heart, for the way you love me and care for me and for my family, even more so on Father's Day. It's a huge blessing to me the way you care for my son and my wife. I thank you for uh, the ways that uh, you treat him as a normal kid, not the pastor's kid, and you give him grace to be a normal kid and a normal little boy. You know, he's got some strikes against him dealing with his dad being a pastor. And uh, apart from God's grace, he could grow up pretty mad at God or just disillusioned by the church. Um, yeah, I, told, I, I wasn't gonna cry. I did the first service, I am again. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, hey, as we get started, I've got a, I've got a story for you about uh, three young dads-to-be. They were in Minneapolis. And all three of them, their wives, go into labor on the same day. And so over the course of a few hours, they all show up. They didn't know each other at this point, but they all show up at the hospital. And uh, their wives are in labor for a number of hours until eventually, one by one, uh, each of them are ushered out of the birthing room into the waiting room because their wives, all three of them separately, had to be rushed into an emergency C-section surgery. And so these three guys in the waiting room, they're, they're getting a little anxious, you know, and they don't know each other, but some camaraderie develops between them and they're sitting there for a while and eventually a nurse comes out and she comes to the first dad and says, hey, I got some good news, congratulations. Your wife's doing fantastic. And uh, congratulations, she just gave birth to a healthy set of twins. You know, and after she recovers, we'll come get you, you can come see her. Congratulations. And so this guy's ecstatic, right? He's high-fiving the other guys. They're, they're hooping and hollering. And uh, this nurse leaves. And then shortly after, almost immediately, the next nurse comes in to the second guy. But before she came in, I left out a key part of the story here. That, that guy who had the twins, he's so excited. And he shouts out to everybody who can hear him, this is incredible. I play baseball for the Minnesota Twins. And I just had twins. Well, the next nurse comes in and she comes to the next dad. And uh, he, he's waiting, you know, he's kind of, she goes, just so you know, your wife is doing great. She's in recovery. And all things considered, she's doing pretty well. <laughs> Which he's kind of like, uh, what does that mean? It's like, well, she just gave birth to triplets. And they're all healthy. And so this guy, again, he just kind of starts shaking and he's fired up and he's hooting and hollering. They're giving high fives and he goes, this is unbelievable. I work for 3M. Well, at that point, the third guy faints and hits the ground with a thud. The nurse is still there, so she kind of revives him, fans him, gives him a little water and when he wakes up, he's just white as a ghost. They kind of prop him up and they go, are you feeling okay? He's like, no. Okay, can we, no. Well, why? I work for 7-Up. <laughs> well, hey, happy Father's Day. And uh, dads, we're really excited for you and uh, grateful for you. Men, if you're not a dad, we're grateful for you as well, as we've said. And, uh, you know, if you're a dad, you have the great privilege of God sharing with you his name, Father. He's lent it to you. And so you get the great privilege of living that out as a dad to your kids 
And uh, our prayer for you and for your kids is that you do that well. And that when you don't, when you don't, you, you repent and you turn back and, and that's good too. And, um, you know, for some, we recognize though too that uh, Father's Day can be a hard day, not unlike Mother's Day, especially maybe if um, you, you've lost your dad or uh, if uh, your dad was just never really around to begin with. And uh, Father's Day can be a rough day. Um, and if that's you, just know you have a heavenly dad who loves you who cares, who knows all those things. If your earthly dad uh, was not much of a dad, don't judge your heavenly dad by your earthly dad. Judge your earthly dad by your perfect heavenly dad. See the difference? And this morning in the parable we're in, you're gonna get a picture of that perfect heavenly dad. And so with that, let me pray. And then we're gonna be in Luke chapter 15, but let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And uh, Lord, thanks that you are a good dad to us, your kids, that you love us, you care about us, you provide for us, and Lord, that you save us. Holy Spirit, would you uh, speak to and through me as uh, we look at your word this morning, help us understand the things you've written down, and not just understand them, but then uh, sear our hearts with it so we could live it out and be changed. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks most for Jesus. We pray all of this through him. Amen. Well, uh, there's a famous story in the book of Luke that for centuries, for centuries has been known as the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son. You might know it. You know, it's about this son who takes off with his inheritance from his father and he blows all of it and then returns uh, back to his dad who forgives him. But you know, it's a great mistake to think that this parable is just about that one son. It's actually about two sons. And so we're gonna look at each of those sons this morning, and then we're also gonna see the father and his reactions in the midst of all of it. So uh, with that, this is a parable. We're in a series called Parables, and a parable is a reminder, is a story uh, that Jesus tells, and it's intended to teach. It's intended to illustrate something to us. So if we really wanna get something out of it, we gotta lean in, pay attention, and see, where do I see myself and my circumstances in this story? What is God calling me to do? How's he calling me to change in light of it? And so in this parable, not of the prodigal son, maybe it should better be called the, product, the parable of the two sons. Um, let's take a look at them in order. And we're gonna start with the younger son. And what I want you to see is that some are a lot like the younger son. Some people, some of us, we're a lot like that younger son son. And these two sons were meant to compare and contrast them. Jesus begins, he said, uh, there was a man, there was a man, verse, 15, verse 11, chapter 15, who had two sons. And in, in saying this and telling this parable, Jesus wants us to look at these two guys, compare them, contrast them. And if we fail to do that, we fail to miss what it is the profound message that he's trying to teach us and what he's meaning to teach and illustrate with this story. So uh, let's talk about this younger son. The, the younger of them, he said to his father, Father, uh, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now, that may not sound uh, too profound to you, but to the original listeners of this story, they would have been awestruck and just dumbfounded by this request. Their jaws would have dropped and they couldn't have believed it. 
So here's the deal. If you were a father in that day and you had two sons, when you died, your property, everything you owned would be divided among your two sons, but it would be divided into thirds. Two thirds would go to the oldest son and then one third would go to the youngest. The oldest son in scripture always, and in that day, would always receive a double inheritance. And they were responsible for carrying on the family line. You know, sometimes I think maybe the oldest got a double inheritance because his parents made all the mistakes on him. And so he gets it made up for him that way. But really it's just to carry on the family line. And that was his role. Um, But the thing is that all of this got divided up never while the father was alive, but after he died. And then it was divided up. So when the younger son comes in and he says, um, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Give it to me now. Do you know what he's really saying? He's saying, dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Why don't you just give me what I have coming to me? He's wishing for his father to be dead. The, The younger son, he wants the father's things but he doesn't want the father. He wants the father's wealth and his estate. He wants the comfort and prestige and all the independence that come with those things. But he doesn't want his dad. He wishes he was dead. This is unheard of. But do you know what's even more unheard of? Not that he would say this to his dad, but his dad's response in Jesus' story. See, in that day and age, if if a son came to his Middle Eastern father in this time and said to him, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance his dad would have lashed out at him verbally, drove him out of the house, if not physically driving him out of the house. And so as he's telling this story and jaws drop, uh, it's likely they're thinking that's where Jesus is going with the story, but check out what the father does. He divided his property between them. He ended up dividing it up. He didn't drive him out. He divided it. Now, I want you to notice something. There's The word property shows up twice here in our English translation. And I told you before, but uh, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. We have different translations because it was originally written the Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. And so it's translated into English for our benefit, right? To understand it. But like any, if you maybe have friends who speak a different language and maybe they speak Spanish and they explain something to you and you're like, what does that mean? And sometimes it takes a few different ways to explain it to totally get it, right? There's just not always a one-to-one perfect translation. And in this case, if you could see the Greek underneath this English, this first word property and the second word property are actually two different Greek words. The first one is usia. And it just means like uh, the substance, the capital, the, the, all of the, the, the inheritance, the, the financial capital, basically. But, but this word that Jesus uses when he says what the father does is actually the Greek word bios, from which we get, you know, bios or biology, and it means life. And so when Jesus says that the father divided up the property between them, what he's literally telling them is he divided his life between them. He divided his life between them. Why why would Jesus say it that way? Why didn't he use the same word again? Well, the father's estate was his land, his his wealth was his land. And so the only way he could give that younger son a third of of all of his property, of all of his estate, would be to sell 
the estate to sell off a third of it. And uh, in those days, your identity, especially as a a patriarch, as a man, uh, was bound up with the land that you owned. If you lost your land, you lost yourself. If you lost part of it, you lost your status in the community. It was tied to how much property you had. So what the younger son's asking his dad to do, he's saying, dad, I want you to tear your life apart. I want you to throw your reputation away. I want you to give me what's coming to me. And instead of his dad lashing out at him, this dad actually does it. He divides his property, his very life between them. He sells off a third and gives the proceeds to the younger son. We get to verse 13, uh, where we read that not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, all, all the proceeds, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So the son takes his share, he goes off, he squanders all of what he had been given. And we don't know how long this time was. Might have been a few months, might have been a few years, might have been a decade, but he squanders everything. And eventually he comes to the point where he's so impoverished and he's been being taken advantage of, his life is in total ruin. And when literally he's in the pigsty, down in the mud, he comes to realize uh, what, what a fool he's been. So he, he went out in, in his despair. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And, and, and he begins feeding the pigs. And he realizes, I don't have anything. In fact, these pigs are eating better than me. And he begins to long for the pods that he was giving the pigs to eat. because no one gave him anything. He had lost it all. So he comes up with a plan and his plan is to go home. He's gonna go home. See, when he came to himself, he said, "Uh, you know, I'm a hired servant here, but how many of my father's hired servants? They have more than enough bread. They earn enough to buy food. And and here I am, I'm just living in my own hunger, starving. He says, I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna go to my dad and I'm gonna go back to him and I'm just gonna say, uh, dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. I I squandered that, I messed up, uh, I forfeited all of that. And, And what I want you to do, just take me back, not as your son. I don't deserve that. I've sinned against heaven, against you. Take me back as one of your hired servants. Let, let me come work for you and, and kind of earn my way back and pay you back. Now, uh, one thing to, to note here is that there were two forms really of servants in that day. There were indentured servants and there were hired servants. Indentured servants are sometimes referred to as slaves. This is not like American slavery. American slavery, somebody's forced into it in the past, right? And they're, they're owned by a master. 
indentured slavery is, is a servant who they willingly enter into it, sometimes to pay off a debt, other times just to, to live under the authority of their master so that he would provide everything that's needed for their family because he couldn't do it otherwise on his own. And so it was entered into freely and really a, a, an indentured servant became kind of part of the family. But then the hired servants, they, they don't live on the property. They usually live maybe in town and they come out, work for a wage and go home. Notice he doesn't even come back wanting to be a slave, an indentured servant to his father. He comes back wanting to be a hired servant, to work for his dad, to live in town, to commute back and forth, just treat me like a hired servant. He wants to pay off his debt, essentially. He wants to pay him back. He wants to earn his way back because he knows if he comes back into this tight little community, he can't just show up. Everybody knows what's happened. Everybody knows what he did. I mean, his dad lost so much status in the community. There's gotta be some kind of restitution if he's coming home. And so that's the plan that he makes. And he begins his way home. He arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I got a question, dads especially. If you have a son who does something like this, some, some of you uh, I know have sons or daughters who've done things like this. And so maybe this is, is a, a little cute for you even. But they, they come back and you're sitting in the chair or you're sitting at the dining room table and you look out the window and you see them walking up the drive. What are you thinking? Your fingers start tapping the table. What's this about? It better be good. Um, I cannot believe he would step foot back here. You, you might be thinking that, and I think that the son, as he returns, assumes his father's thinking that. That's why he has this plan, not to come back as a son, but as a hired servant. Yet, uh, look at what the father does. He saw him and he wasn't angry, he felt compassion. And he ran, he embraced him and he kissed him. L literally, he, he fell on his neck, hugged him, sobbing, kissing his neck. And, and the father runs out to greet him. And you need to know, like Middle Eastern men in this day, they don't run. They don't, children run. Women might run, because if you're, especially if you're the patriarch, you gotta hike up, for lack of a better way to say it, you gotta hike up your skirt, tie it up, expose your legs, and run. That's humiliating. Nobody does that. But that's what he does. He had already been humiliated, now he just, he's like, hey, what's one more? There's my son. And he runs to him. And when he gets there, the son begins, you know, his plan. He says to him, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to go into, uh, so just take me back as a hired servant so I can work and I can pay you back. I don't want anything. But the father has none of it. He, he won't hear it. Immediately the father says to his servants, he says, hey, get, get a rope, the best one. Bring a ring, put it on his finger. 
And this wasn't just a ring, this would be like the signet ring, symbolizing he is part of the family. He's received back home. Put shoes on his feet. And again, I wonder if for a moment this sounds like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to be welcomed back as a son. I, again, the father keeps going. He says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and let's celebrate. Now, you need to know, uh, they didn't normally eat meat in that day for meals because it was so expensive. It was a delicacy. Um, the cost of beef was high. We got something in common with them in our day and age, right? But you especially wouldn't kill the fattened calf. You wouldn't do that even for a private uh, feast. You would do that maybe for a big public feast. This was a big deal. And so what this implies, when Jesus tells this story, they understand it to mean that he's having a full-blown, full-blown celebration. And the whole village is invited to celebrate. And everybody's there and he says, for my son was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they all begin to celebrate. And at this point, uh, it's good for us to be reminded that some, some of us are like the younger brother. We want the things that God provides, but not God. Uh, Younger brothers, they want their independence. Want to live their lives the way they want to live and, and, and believe that somehow that will bring happiness just to go do whatever I want to do. And then some who do that, a smaller portion of that eventually will turn around and come home like this younger brother and realize what a waste that was and how wrong they were and change their mind and repent and turn around and come home, come home to the father. You see, the father in this story isn't just a good dad. It represents God. It's our heavenly father. Because in reality, we're all kind of like the younger son. We all, uh, we want to somehow earn favor with God, but we can't. We, we try hard to pull it all together, but the God of the Bible will have none of that. He, he gives to us only through grace. It's only by his goodness that we're accepted. And at the end of verse 24, it seems like, hey, everything's restored, this is great. And the reality is that when we hear this parable, usually that's where we stop. And we think of this, and we we think immediately of the younger son and his rebellion and his repentance and the father's open arms. And those are good things to remember because it's clear in the story. But this isn't the end. There's another conflict coming. And it's with the older son because some are like the younger son, but others were like the older son. Like the older son. See, we might think that everybody's eyes are welling up with tears as Jesus tells this story, but in reality, they're kind of dumbfounded by all of this, if not angry. And then Jesus drops <laughs> another bomb on him and totally turns on its head their understanding of what it means and how we ought to approach God. So let's look at the older son. The story continues in verse, uh, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants. He asked him, hey, what's going on? Why is all the music? Why are they dancing? What's, what's happening here? 
And uh, his servant, the servant said to him, well, your, your brother's come. He came back. And so your, your daddy killed the fattened calf and he's having a party. The whole village is at the house. They're dancing and having a great time. You should come. But look, at the elder brother, at the older brother, he was, he was angry. He was furious, in fact. And he refuses to go in. And by refusing to go in, the older brother is basically saying this. You know what? I'm done with this family. I'm done. I won't be part of this. I'm the heir. He wasted everything. Everything that's left is mine. He's not part of this family anymore. And if he is, then I'm out. I won't have it. No, I'm not. No, I'm not going. And that's the heart of this older brother. Now, if you were his dad, again, how would you respond to the older brother? Would you be like, well, okay, fine. Be that way. <laughs> you know, go wallow in, in your stinking thinking and nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. Go do it. I'd be tempted to do that. But that's not what this father does. He does the same thing he did with his younger son. He actually goes out to him. His father came out and entreated him. Now, we don't use that word very often, entreated, do we? I haven't used it this week other than in the first message. Um, entreat means to ask for something eagerly, anxiously, repeatedly. In other words, the father comes out and he's like, hey, we're having a party. You gotta come in. Come on, hurry up, seriously, come on, let's go. Please, you, you gotta come, please come. And, and he begs him to come, but the son won't have it. In fact, he's, he's rather harsh with his dad. He's like, look. He doesn't call him father, he, look, he says, look. I've, I've served you all these years. I've obeyed you. I've, I've never disobeyed. I've always honored you. And yet that, that son of yours, notice he doesn't say my brother, he doesn't say your son, he says that son of yours, the one who made you sell everything, who, who threw all of our lives into chaos, and then he went off and he squandered everything with the way that he lived and with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him? I'm not coming in, no. See, the older brother is furious. He's really upset with the cost because uh, he knows that everything that the father's spending is supposed to be his. See, he sees the father using his inheritance, showing his grace in a way that the older son doesn't approve of. He puts himself in that place when it's not his to have. And you know, sometimes we do this. Sometimes we're like the younger brother. We, we run off in sin and rebel. But other times we're like the older brother. Notice verse 29. See, I've, 
I've always served you, I've never disobeyed. And that you, you never gave me a young, a young goat even, let alone a fattened calf. See, we don't say it like that to God. We don't complain about not having a goat, but we complain about other things, don't we? And, and we say maybe things like this, I've, I've obeyed you, I've, I've played by the rules, I've, I've done everything, God, to the best of my ability to honor you, but why didn't you take that away from my life? Why didn't you heal this sickness? Why did you allow this terrible thing to happen to me and yet you blessed that terrible person? Why? My father, my husband, my wife, you let them die, but, but you healed them? That one, really? I've attended this church my entire life. I've given so much to it, both toil and treasure. And yet, yet that's the person who gets all the attention and all the love. Why are they doing that? Here's a question. What's the older brother really care about? I'll give you a hint. The same thing as the younger brother. He wants all of the father's things, but not the father. Except he comes about it from a different angle. The younger brother takes off in his sin and, and just wants to go have all the father's things, but not the father and go do whatever he wants. The older brother tries to earn all of it by his goodness and self-righteousness. And really neither of them care about their father. They both simply care about their father's gifts. And so when the father goes out to him to plead with him, he said, son, you're, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. And in a good story, we'd have some kind of resolution. We'd find out, well, what's the older brother do then? Does he repent like the younger one? But then Jesus just kind of ends the parable and he leaves a cliffhanger. And we're left with the older brother still on the outside of the party looking in. And the reason I think Jesus does that is to illustrate something to us and, and to draw us into the story and say, hey, where do you see yourself in this story? Are you the younger brother? And you need to repent maybe of just clear rebellion in your life? Or are you the older brother? And you need to repent of your self-righteousness and your morality that you think is going to earn God's favor. You know, um, Tim Keller has a book uh, called The Prodigal God about this parable. It's fantastic, I recommend it to you. It's informed greatly my understanding of this passage and greatly this message this morning. Um, and in it, one of the things that he writes is this. He goes, here's what you see. There's two sons, one who's good and one who's bad. But they've both been alienated from the father. And you come to realize that both want the father's things, but they don't want the father. They've been using the father just to get the things they really love, which is the wealth and the status. But one's been going about it by being very, very bad. And the other's been going about it by being very, very good. In other words, both of them need to repent. And at times we need to repent not only of our clear sin, but even our attempt at goodness, which is done with the wrong motivation and thinking that maybe we're better than we truly are. See, in this, this parable, we get two just clear, distinct uh, 
stories and illustrations, don't we? And the younger son, we look at him and we go, okay, yeah, so he, uh, he squandered everything. He, uh, he didn't manage his money well. He told his father, I wish you were dead. He, he took off, lost it all uh, with just reckless living and, and prostitutes and, and everything else. We go, hmm, yeah, that's sin. That's clearly sin. He's a bad dude. But then we look at the older brother and we think, but he's got it all together. He's been doing good. Why wasn't the father good to him? But in reality, his good living wasn't out of gratefulness to his dad. It was to earn favor from his dad. And both need to repent. See, in the younger brother, uh, Keller goes on to write, he says, we see the, uh, we see the way of self-discovery. The way of self-discovery. Uh, people uh, like the younger brother, here's what they say. I'm gonna live however I want. I'm gonna live however I see fit. I'm gonna determine what's right or wrong for me. And I'm gonna go out and find my true self. That's the younger brother. Self-discovery. But then he says, there's also the way of, of, of uh, moral conformity. And the way of moral, moral conformity is this. I'm, I'm going to be good. I'm going to try very hard. I'm gonna comply with the moral code. And both of these groups, those who seek self-discovery, those who seek moral conformity, they say that this is the way everybody else should live. The self-discovery people say, yeah, just be yourself. Go find what pleases you and go find it. The moral conformity people say, you know, you'd be a lot happier if you just obeyed the rules. Both think everybody should live their way and both think that everyone, if they lived their way, would be really happy. But Jesus says they're both wrong. They're both lost. And both are far from home. And the way back is to repent. So what's repentance? As we wrap up, let's just look at what repentance is. First off, repentance is recognizing that I'm going the wrong way. Whether I'm going the wrong way in just clear, deliberate sin or I'm going the wrong way in thinking that somehow my goodness is enough. And that I'm better than them. It's recognizing I'm going the wrong way. Recognizing my sin, rebellion, foolishness, stubbornness, my hardness of heart, my self-righteousness. And then it's changing my mind. Literally, the word repent means simply to change your mind, metanoia, to change your mind. And ultimately, that is the act of repentance. It's, it's changing my mind to see things not how I wanna see them, either in self-discovery or moral conformity, but how God sees them. And then the third piece is that if I've truly changed my mind and true repentance has happened, it, it yields itself in that I turn around and go the other way. It yields itself in action. That action of turning around and going back isn't itself repentance, it's the fruit of repentance. Because if actually doing it was repentance, then that would mean I'm earning my way back. That's what the younger son tried to do. No, it's the change of mind. And then I live like it. And it's God's grace that changes us. It's all his favor, all his abundance. And it cannot be earned. It cannot. As we wrap up, I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2. 
uh, where we see all of these things really in action in the New Testament. Towards the end of chapter two of Ephesians, Paul writes this to the church there. He says, remember, there was a time where you were separated from Christ. You were alienated. You were on your own. You were off in a far land. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Remember, that's who you were. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. You have, uh, you have an elder brother, a big brother, who's a good big brother, who goes out, finds you, draws you near, brings you home. And earlier in this chapter, he says, you, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The, the way you once walked. Uh, sometimes that was... Uh, living in a licentious way like the younger brother, sometimes that was thinking that you had it all together, but the reality is you were dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of, math, of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of not because of anything good in us, but because of the great love with which he loved us, because of his goodness. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. He goes on, for by grace you've been saved. It's not your own doing so that no one can boast. It's a gift. See, a lot of times we say it's the story of the prodigal son. You know what the word prodigal means? It means spending money or resources freely, recklessly, wastefully, extravagant, having or giving something on a lavish scale. And the younger son certainly was prodigal in the way that he squandered everything. But do you know who's more prodigal? The dad because it cost him everything. And yet, uh, it cost him everything to watch his son go and it cost him everything to welcome his son home. It cost him humiliation to go out and meet his older son when he just wanted to fight in the middle of an incredible celebration. And that father, that good dad in that story is our heavenly father. And he's prodigal in his grace and his mercy toward you. He's rich in mercy so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you. If you would put your faith and trust in Christ and come home. Let me pray.